Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by Exabel. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams. In this episode, I speak to Gene Exter of AltDG. Gene has been in alternative data pretty much since the beginning, and he even has a claim to having named the sector for a Wall Street Journal article. In our conversation, Gene and I discuss the past, present, and future of alternative data, as well as his data cleaning company, AltDG, and his experience teaching alternative data at NYU. I began by asking Gene to take me back to the beginning and how he first got involved with the sector. Sure. So, I mean, if we go back to the very beginning, the very, very beginning, uh, I was born in the former Soviet Union and uh, as a child came to the Bay Area right before the fall, you know, I came from a very technical family as is typical in the Soviet Union. You know, my mother is a programmer. My father is a civil engineer and sort of the best business decision ever made was coming to this country, obviously. And uh, do, they, do they come for work? Do they, do they sniff the wind in the Soviet Union and think this isn't going the right direction? And, and were they, did they come with a job or did they come looking? No, they came with no job, but they came with education. And as a lot of people back then, people could really see, you know, that it was not going in the right direction. So actually, because we left right before the fall, we were actually refugees coming into America. And then a year later, you know, it fell and people could go direct. But uh, we didn't know that at the time. You know, my mother came with programming skills, like she used to do punch cards, program punch cards. She said the worst day of her life was when she was carrying a stack of 600 punch cards in order and they fell on the floor and she had to uh, recompile them back into order so that anyway so you know like back in the day punch cards was kind of computing wasn't it in a way and and actually coding and software and all these things or the origins of them was a very female pursuit it was woman dominated in the, absolutely. In the early days of software wasn't it? absolutely she told me that the most programmers at that time were were, were female and so that that's really interesting and uh, you know so came to the bay area and started being heavily involved in technology i was uh, for my undergraduate degree i went to berkeley and studied cognitive science and artificial intelligence and uh, eventually ended up working at a company called Ask Jeeves. Now this might date me a little bit, but- uh, <laughs> I, re- I, re- I remember them, I remember Okay, them. the butler, right? So I was a search engine engineer there and- Artificial intelligence in 2000, 96 to 2000, it was all about expert networks back then, wasn't it? Rather than neural networks, rather than, it was, sorry, it was about expert um, systems rather than uh, machine learning. Is that right? Well, actually, so that there was knowledge, you know, it used to be called, I think, uh, uh, knowledge systems or knowledge graphs, but actually neural networks were uh, a big thing back then. And like in the mid nineties, we all had to learn how to code neural networks from scratch. Now this was not deep learning. There's a slight difference. And Mm. then they, in the late nineties, they fell out of favor. And in fact, I know Uh, a very talented academic that did not get his tenureship because his research was in neural networks and it became so unpopular that that uh, scientists had wanted nothing to do with it. And then later, about 10 years later, it came back into fashion. And obviously now deep learning is, you know, one of the hottest and most, you know, effective 
uh, ways of using machine learning. So it's kind of interesting how science goes through, you know, it's not a, a directional, always forward moving progress. It's fashions, isn't it? It's like everything. It just comes and goes. I'm, there's a massive AI winter, isn't there? Is it in the 70s and 80s where everyone forgot about AI and then rediscovered it in the 90s? Like there's this kind of, right. it's, it's, it swings and roundabouts. But, but anyway, so you came out and got a job with Ask Jeeves, which were one of the hottest search engines of the time, I might say. Except that I graduated right into the dot-com bust. And, and so I had to come up with different ways of making money. And so one of the things that I was doing was like in 2004, started investing into real estate, like a lot of other people. At the time, there was no Trulia, there was no Zillow. So I ended up creating a web crawler for Craigslist and collecting, you know, all the real estate data, which helped me invest. And then also ended up leading to my career in the alternative data industry. Ended up going to Cornell to get my graduate degree in business and graduated into 2008 in, with, a, with a finance degree into the crisis. So if you want to know what industries to short, just uh, you know check out what degrees I'm getting. And then as I graduate, short that industry. That's I'm so what you were doing, and this is kind of early, early um, noughties, we call them in England, early aughts, you were creating your alternative data by creating your own data set by scraping Craigslist as a web scraper, and then using the insights that you got from it to invest in in real estate. How much exposure to the to other people doing similar things did you have? How much awareness did you feel like you were the only person in the world, or had you heard of someone else doing it? What was what was what inspired it? Like, what was the alternative data world that you were aware of back then? So at that time, I wasn't aware of the alternative data world at all because I was all focused in technology. This was before the business degree. And, you know, I was aware of a few people doing web crawling, but really we were the first ones, I think, to take Craigslist data and put it on a map, which seems like an obvious thing now, but back then, you know, Craigslist didn't allow that or, or didn't have that on the website. And I also was selling the data to companies that reached out to me that knew that I had it. And I had no idea why they're buying this data. I assumed they were doing some kind of, you know, I didn't ask too many questions. I just sort of so sold the analysis from that web crawl data. What kind of companies were buying it and were they paying a lot for it? So the types of companies that were buying it are companies like Majestic Research that mm. I ended up actually working at. And that was, I would say, of any company that was the pioneer of the alternative data industry before it was even called alternative data. You know, Tony Berkman and other talented individuals at that company figured out that they could buy non-traditional data sets and sell it to the investment industry packaged as traditional sell-side research reports, PDFs, et cetera. And, you know, they were really the first ones to popularize the concept. So because of that Craigslist project, that eventually led me to Majestic Research. Nice. Majestic Research, who have since become M-Science. Correct. It was purchased first by ITG and now it's M-Science, yes. You're doing all that before, then you go to Cornell, you get your MBA, and then you come back and you and you get into Majestic Research. So you've so you're no longer creating data sets yourself. You're now in the in the research space. What did what did the alternative data world look like at that point? 
Well, at that point, like I said, there was, it was very, very small. It was very, very secretive. There was really only, you know, as far as I know, Majestic Research was the only big company that was doing this kind of thing. And, you know, when we would approach uh, potential data vendors, they would say, well, well I don't get it. What, what do you want with our data? Why would you want to buy it uh, in contrast to today when everybody, you know, is trying to open up a pizza shack and sell their pizza customer data to hedge funds, right? It was a completely different world. And, you know, at, at, at that time, it was also something that you couldn't really talk about. We, we would not be able to have this conversation today if it was pre-2015, because from, uh, you know, for, I would say from the beginning of the industry, which is really the beginning of Tony Berkman's Majestic Research in about 2005 to 2015, it was a very niche, very secretive, you know, very exclusive industry. Um, and that was because of that was because of the clientele. That's because you were predominantly selling to a to a sophisticated investor who wanted to keep their secret source very much under wraps, and that included what was being fed into them. Yeah, and and part of the reason is because we didn't know how the world was going to react to this industry even existing. What if you did look around? Who else? Who else would you see at the time? Who 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 else was was kind of on your radar, or was there no radar because there was so little information? Uh, yeah, literally no radar. There were just a few funds uh, buying this data or buying the research. The types of products that were being offered at the time really mimicked the traditional sell-side research, which is you know a PDF with uh, a text analysis and some charts that were being fed by the alternative data instead of traditional financial data like most other sell-side institutions were doing. So yeah, it wasn't until really 2014, 2015 when the industry exploded. And part of that was due to Wall Street Journal, actually. Interesting. But what and what data were you were you dealing with back then when you when you first were at Majestic Research? What did the data look like? You know, the data was very similar to what it is today, just in a lower there, there, there was a smaller number of vendors, but the type of data sets were very similar, right? So a transaction data, web crawl data, you know, a satellite uh, imagery was just starting to come online, you know, tracking of different supply chains. And it was mostly being sold by companies that weren't in the market of selling data to institutional investors. They just happened to be in an industry where they had their operational data had insight into that supply chain, which would be valuable to investors. And, you know, it was sort of called exhaust data because mm. it was just an additional revenue stream that these companies would be creating by selling it to, to companies like Majestic Research, which would then go on to market it to institutional investors. And was there a direct path as well, or was it all having to go through middlemen like Majestic Research? Yeah, mostly it was not direct. It's not like today. So it was mostly going through intermediaries uh, like Majestic Research. Okay. Okay, cool. And that kind of brings us up to the, the kind of that 2014, 2015 period where you where you're kind of describing how alternative data really took off what 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 happened then what's the what's the inflection point at that point right so at the time i was working for uh, a fund called point 72 uh, a well-known investment fund 
And they were also some of the pioneers on the buy side of doing alternative data. I was working with a talented guy, Mark Payson there. And I was also starting to do some lectures and on the subject, mostly from a statistical perspective, like the New York Statistical Society, where I would talk about the tools and techniques that are typically used in the industry. Of course, I couldn't talk about the details. You know, I couldn't talk about any vendors or anything like that. But when, you know, when I was presenting on the topics, at some point, Mark and I were talking about, well, what should I call this thing? And at first we came up with exotic data. So alternative data was almost known as exotic data, but then in the budget lines for many funds, when they bought, you know, non-traditional research, which also included expert networks, it was sort of on the, in the alternative budget line. So because of that, started calling it alternative data in the presentations, which would not have led to anything. But then the Wall Street Journal reached out, this guy, Bradley Hope did a huge investigative piece on the industry, reached out to me, asked me what it was called. I told them, uh, just use alternative data. So when they printed that article in 2015, which, you know, he, he really was like a detective. He uh, spent months and months getting to the bottom of it. And he, he ended up talking to some people that, yeah, he got, he really printed uh, a lot of information, that article. And part of what he printed was he called it alternative data. And once the journal started calling it that, that's when I think a lot of other people did as well. I mean, to this day, people still call it like quantum mental research sometimes, alternative data, non-traditional data, but, but you know, that, that. Yeah, Gene, so to cut a long story short, you, you're, you're, you, you named it, you named alternative data. I, I think it was more like the journal named it and I gave a suggestion. So, but then, so, and you feel like that Wall Street Journal article just kind of supercharged the whole sector because suddenly it was on the map and suddenly it wasn't this secretive backroom kind of secretive clients kind of world. It was suddenly out in the open. And, and so things changed quickly, did they? Right. And so two things happened. First, everybody was really worried that now that it's out in the public, it's, you know, bad things are going to happen. And the second thing that happened is absolutely nothing. Right. It didn't. In fact, instead of, you know, the instead of the concerns coming uh, to fruition, what bad things were they imagining? Well, you know, nobody really knew. Right. Because it was sort of we, we didn't know how people were going to react to the fact that, you know, information uh, is being used by institutional investors. When in reality, it's sort of like counting bricks on a building being built and reporting on the progress of that building day to day by counting the number of bricks, right? Mm. So there's, you know, value being added to society with uh, this information, but we just didn't know how people were going to react. And the reaction was that all of a sudden, all the institutional investors and all the people that had the data just read that article and realized, hey, we can be doing this too. And, and realized like, we don't have to, we can be out in the open about it. And so from that, that really helped. Professionalize the market in a way. It was professional before, but it kind of made it a more, it standardized it and made it a little bit more of a normal kind of sector. Exactly. Right. It evolved it for sure. But I mean, there were, there were a couple before like Eagle Alpha and, and Sesam I've spoken to are from, from 2012, but yeah. So, but so 2015 you see as a major cutoff point as being like a kind of, as a, as a, as a beginning of the beginning of the world that we know today, perhaps. 
Right. Yeah. So Amit Eagle Alpha is also one of the first sort of pioneers of popularizing alternative data. You know, Gregory and uh, Justin at ThinkNum are doing an amazing job of of sort of being this sort of hybrid provider of both raw data and data that is specifically structured for the institutional investor in mind. Uh, so you really see the industry evolving in these ways where almost every financial institution now has some kind of an alternative data team inside of it. So at that time, I started working with many other funds, companies like Lone Pine and Baliasny and GSAM helping do alternative data. Let's talk about let's talk about all DGs. So in 2015, at this point, then you then you found a company, you co-found a company called Alt DG. So maybe talk a little bit around exactly what you do in 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 this in this space. Like what does Alt DG do? Yeah. So what we do is we help companies with data augment and structure the raw data in a way that is useful for institutional investors. At first, we did sort of general technology, sort of like maybe like Matei at System 2, just kind of general technology consulting. And over time, we started specializing in the most lucrative and most frequent requests that our business had, which was the pre-processing and augmentation of raw alternative data, right? So one of the main pieces is adding entity mapping structure to data sets that don't come with that information. Obviously, if you're an investor into the public markets, you need to have the symbols, you need to have the tickers and the companies. Uh, most raw alternative data sets don't come with that. So for example, an, a, an alternative data set might arrive with being, for example, let's let's take a kind of simple the simplest kind maybe, which is, I don't know if you'd agree, but credit card transactions or something like that. And so then you have a large number of transactions made at a large number of businesses, which people, you know, in various shops or restaurants or whatever, but those businesses aren't necessarily the names of the, of the, of the stock companies and the tickers of, of, of on the markets themselves. So that's a, that's a headache and a, and a kind of long job to do to actually make sense from the data and turn it into something which you can link to from a financial markets perspective. Is that, is that, is that all of it or, or have I, is there more? Yeah, that's part of it. And it's a big part of it. And you're correct. I mean, if you ever looked at your credit card transactions and you're trying to figure out who the merchant is, sometimes you're scratching your head and you're saying, oh, there's some symbols and numbers. I don't really know, you know, where I spent this money. If a human has a hard time doing that, that means a computer has a really hard time doing that, right? So we actually ended up writing basically a search engine using some of the techniques I learned at Ask Jeeves, basically a search engine, which goes out and tries to map the, the raw text to an entity using, you know, over 60 different data sources. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a pretty complex piece of machine learning code that 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 basically does that mapping automatically so you've you've auto, so you've automated that process so it's not a question of you know a bunch of of hungry young graduates doing this for you it's 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 an it's now an automated process right after writing regular expressions for 10 years trying Oof. to use keywords to map to individual entities realized that that was a dead end non-scalable approach and you know ended up basically writing, you know, a half a million lines of code to, to automate that, that process. Wow. 
Okay. And you said I, I hadn't fully covered it. Was there, was there other parts? Yeah. So there are other layers of augmentation to data sets that are needed. You know, one of them is the panel problem, which is that when you have alternative data and you have, let's say users or companies coming in and out of the data set, that that's not good for analysis purposes. The ideal data set would have all of the users, all of the businesses in the data set, the entire length of the data set, nobody's dropping in and out. If people are dropping in and out when they're not present in the data, they have empty data, it's not there. And so to deal with that, we've created, you know, techniques based on deep learning to impute uh, the missing data and to create at, at the lowest level of detail, basically impute the missing data as if all the users, all the panel members were there the whole time. Another layer is just creating the actual product itself for consumption by institutional investors. Many companies don't know exactly what hedge funds and other investors are looking for. When they're looking at data sets, they make incorrect assumptions, like we have to correlate it directly to stock prices or things like that. So we create a layer of aggregation that helps create uh, a marketable product. So there are all these different layers. Most of them are automated, and we really focus on that software value-added component. It strikes me that the processes you describe are necessary. They're not optional. They're necessary. If you've got a data set and you want to extract sense from it, then it needs to have these processes run through it. Are there... So is it now... Does it... I mean... Do, do alternative data providers can they do this themselves as well, or is it do they do they have to come through someone like you? Is this is how did how what does that market look like? Sure, they can do it themselves after they write all the code to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but I does mean, everyone have to come through you? No, do they? No, I mean there are many different options. A lot of you know, I would say our our biggest competition are still the regular expressions that are being written by. Uh, young analysts that sit there all day and, and try to figure out the keywords necessary to map the data. But of course, after years of practice, you know, we know that that's not scalable. It's not permanent. It doesn't account for any changes, M&A activity, changes in company names, subsidiaries, brands. If you think about it, in a lot of data set, you see brands, right? Brands are not an official thing. They exist only in the figment of a marketing person's imagination. They can show up on a website one day and disappear another day. There are no way, you know, official legal things. And so there's no database of brands and products which can map all the brands and products on earth to the companies that create them, right? The only way to do that is basically to sort of do a live, you know, it's, it's basically like a search engine where you have a query, but instead of the results being websites, the results are the companies and the owners of, of, of these brands or of these products or of the descriptions that go into your receipts or credit card data, et cetera. Yeah. How long does it take for a new data set or well if it's just the mapping part right if it's just the entity mapping i mean it's uh, fairly instantaneous right if it's completely automated now there are sometimes customizations you can do to improve the accuracy by restricting basically constraining the answers to specific industries 
or you know specific companies like for example if it's medical device data then you don't want it to be mapped to you know a movie theater that may have the same name as a medical device company right you want to restrict it so so from that point it's just, it's fairly instantaneous the other you know things like panel stabilization take a little bit more time but again all these things so we we really focused on creating the software creating the algorithms that try to be as much out of the box as possible, instead of creating a best custom solution for every client, because simply put, it's just not cost effective for clients to always have to pay for somebody to create a best solution for them. If they can pay for something out of the box, it's literally orders of magnitude cheaper uh, and more effective than having to code something from scratch for a particular problem. Does it, is it always the alternative data provider who pays for your service or can an alternative buyer, buyer, alternative data buyer pay you as well? Does it work either way or is it always one? Yeah, absolutely. So there, you know, the way we think about the industries, there are three major types of players. There are the originators of the data, the intermediaries, and then the consumers using it. And so at any one of those stages, depending on that, that particular instance, the transformation can happen at any one of those stages, right? It can happen at the vendor, it can happen at the intermediary or at the fund itself. And in terms of clients, do you tend to get, do you, I mean, do you sign someone up on an ongoing basis and they fire any data set they have at you? Do you negotiate a kind of contract for 10 data sets or is it always on a case by case basis? I mean, is it, what kind of, what kind of repeat business are we talking? So the, for the, you know, for the off the shelf software, the pricing is standardized and it's on the website, right? It's, we try to do it in a way that it's not, you know, it's not the kind of situation where you have a salesperson trying to gauge how much they can get from a client, which is kind of how a lot of enterprise negotiations work. We try to make it very standardized, very transparent. Here's how much it's going to cost per mapping. If if the solution is more customized then you know then of course there's some prior scoping that's required to do that but yeah i mean we we really try to make it as off the shelf as standardized as possible because we see that as really the next step in evolution uh, of the alternative data industry towards something that is just more universal used by not just the financial industry, but other industries as well. In fact, uh, a lot of our clients, surprisingly, are outside of the financial data industry period, right? You know, there are these use cases that we had no idea would even exist. For example, CRM systems that have account specialists putting in noisy data and having multiple files for the same client, like somebody could put in IBM, another one puts in international business machines, another person puts in big blue, and now you have all these files and you need to aggregate them together. And if you have tens and tens of thousands of them, you can't really do that by hand. So we have customers coming to us for those purposes as well. So it really has a functionality outside of it. The, the possibilities are endless in a way, like like data being coming on all fronts and coming into every sector. Then the, the fact that you can you can clean data, essentially you, what you've got is a kind of automated data cleaner than that. You can you can conquer the world with that. <laughs> well, part part of part of the success I really owe to the talented students at NYU that I pull out some students from that program to do it, you know, to intern for alternative data group. 
and the, you know, I owe a lot of the success to them. Well, let's talk about that then, Gene. So and among your other, the other uh, arrows in your quiver is the fact that you are a professor at NYU teaching the world's first university level alternative data course. I actually on Monday or recently had a conversation with Alexander Denev, who is an, who is teaching another alternative data course in Oxford. And he was name checking you guys as very much the originators of this, of this, of this, the idea of kind of teaching alternative data. How did that come about? Did you did you contact them? Did they contact you? Was it how, how did that begin? So the so Petter Kolm, who works at Courant and runs a department there, he through a friend reached out to me many years ago to give you know industry type guest lectures at at Courant, and over time you know just the frequency of that started increasing. And then, you know, a, a few years ago, you know, they approached me and said, Hey, why don't we make this an actual course? Let's start teaching alternative data at the Quran school as, as a course, as a program. And it, it, it worked out swimmingly. Students love it. It's, you know, a, yeah, I think it, it was the first, you know, alternative data course by a, an accredited institution. Is it pretty much a kind of technical manipulation of alternative data code? Yeah, coding and, and, and you know, hard technical degree? Or is there a lot of kind of, this is what the marketplace looks like, these are the major players, you know, is there kind of meta metadata kind of around it as well in terms of understanding the software factors around alternative data? I, I would say it's 10% the soft stuff and 90% code. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's the, it's the more technical aspects of the alternative data process, transformation, mapping, debiasing, making data sets more representative, predicting revenues, trying to, you know, forecast different market influencing metrics using these non-traditional data sets. And we're really lucky because we get to partner with real alternative data providers. Like recently, Factius did a deal with NYU where they're an actual data provider for the alternative data industry. And they've been gracious enough to provide the same data to our students to be able to work on not just, you know, fictional synthetic data, but the real stuff that is really used by hedge funds and institutional investors. And they do that in exchange for five of your best students every year. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> well, we charge a small uh, recruitment fee. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <Okay>. uh, <laughs> but, but, and so, and uh, where have they gone, your students? I mean, it's early days. You began in August 2020, so it's early. But are you seeing them move into, into, the, into the hedge funds and into the alternative data space? Is it too early to tell? You know, it, it, it's hard to say. I mean, I know some of the students were employed at companies like Bloomberg and fun, other funds, uh, some funds in China, some funds all over the world. So yeah, I, I do see the students moving into the space. There's an incredible amount of excitement around it. And, and because it's a new industry, there's a real hunger for talent, right? There are just not that many people that are technically able to do these kinds of transformations. And so there's real demand for people with those skill sets, which is what we're, you know, instilling sure. at the university. For sure. So you've been there since, I want to say the start, but since a very early point, Gene. So you're perhaps the best and you've got, you're, you're bringing these young, you know, young Jedis into the, into the world. They, <laughs> what, what alternative data world do you foresee these, these new, these new practitioners embracing or, 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 or coping with? 
in the next five to 10 years? Like where, where do you see alternative data going in the next five to 10 years? What are the major developments you can foresee? Well, I, really two things, right? One is, and, and I'm sure you've heard this from others, is consolidation, right? Right now, there's just, you know, it's, the, it's, the, it's still the early days. So there is a lot of noise in the industry. Everybody's selling data. Very few of these data sets, they may be useful, but they may not be useful for the institutional investment process. And so if you go to websites like alternativedata.org, you can see lists of thousands and thousands of data sets. Part of the reason they exist is because there's not really a good process to understand if they create value. That's the catch 22 of the alternative data industry is that to figure out if something is even valuable, you first have to purchase it. You have to put uh, a half a year of R&D effort on top of it and only to figure out if it's useful or not, right? And so that creates this kind of confusion and noisy environment. As the tools and technology and the skill sets improve, it'll be much easier and much clearer to figure out which data sets have more value and which ones have less value. And when that happens, you know, first it's going to obviously wean off, you know, wean some of the providers off and the ones that are truly valuable are probably going to be scooped up by large institutions who, you know, are currently sitting at the edge of their chairs looking um, for opportunities to get into the space, right? Like uh, companies like Bloomberg and Thomson Reuters and others are, you know, if, if it's clear that a data set has value, there's, you know, no reason for it not to be scooped up by one of the bigger players. So consolidation is, is one thing. The other thing that I see happening is that other industries outside of finance are going to be using this kind of data more and more. You know, for example, you know, if you're talking about like environmental impact of companies, which is uh, a big topic today, ESG, right? People want to be uh, conscious of not just investing in environmentally conscious companies, but maybe working for them, partnering with them. There's really alternative data is the only game in town that can inform you about these factors, right? Like satellite imagery data, shipping data, and electricity usage, et cetera. That's not going to come from traditional finance data sets because nobody cared about that before. It's just not offered, right? So, you know, I see other industries, other sectors using these data sets for everything from hiring, you know, to running their business, you know, airline companies using these data sets for optimizing their routes, competitive analysis, et cetera. So those are the two big sort of changes I foresee in the next five to 10 years. So consolidation and kind of spreading outside the financial sector into other sectors. On your first point that these, the consolidation and on the idea of these big players seeing a valuable data set and thinking we need to buy that one. I have a question about the lasting value of a data set in that is it not an is it the case that a data set comes onto the market and then everybody crawls all over it and so and it becomes covered in a way and it I don't know if it do you do you feel like it loses value over time or or what what is the what is the trick what is the key to having a data set that will retain its value and be worth buying for the for the long run Right that's a really good question actually and it's interesting because it has to do with that catch 22, right? Basically, the short of it is that 
the the less structured a data set is the less likely it is to be commoditized okay so like let's use news as an analogy news is let's say news the raw text of the news is a data source right it's hard to say like you know all of these different investors are getting news so isn't news going to be commoditized well no because if you give 100 different companies the same news you know all the news you're going to have 100 different ways to use it 100 different investment uh, themes and approaches right that's because it's very high dimensional now if you take that same news and you run a sentiment analysis algorithm on it and all you do is you sell three columns of data, you know, a timestamp, uh, a ticker, and some sentiment score. Well, now all of a sudden that data, which could also be called, well, that's the source's news, but now that data is very, you know, easily, can be easily commoditized if, if it actually works. You know, just, you know, the first few funds to get it are going to basically arbitrage all the alpha away from everybody else, Yeah. right? So, the nice thing about alternative data is because of its nature, because of its high dimensionality, the, the, the you know, incredible richness of the cross section, it's, you know, in its raw form, it's highly unlikely that it's going to be, you know, commoditized in the same way that quantitative data sets that are low dimensionality, but may have long, longitudinal history, you know, it's, it's, it's much less likely to be commoditized in that way. It reminds me a little bit of history in that you've got only a certain amount of primary sources from, you know, the ninth century or whatever. And every generation of historians have since taken that data and, and written their own different take on it, their different view on it. But actually, the raw material, the primary source continues to be incredibly useful for every generation um, because you can find new, if you look at it in a different way or you you use modern new techniques, then you can find new value within it. But one, but one just one perhaps final thought on this is... Uh, well, final question on this is you so but you're saying that each that the big these big players will be looking for which data set will have sustained value to keep in order to so in order to, to to buy it i wonder how they might judge that what 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 equals a uh, a valuable data set which is worth particularly choosing out of the market to to, to take within your within your you know company well that's the billion dollar question isn't it right <laughs> is how do you put a score around the value of something that is very you know that can be interpreted in thousands of different ways you know part that the first part of that step is something that alternative data group is trying to address is basically the things that are necessary to transform the data to automate the the first few steps of transformation and make that a lot easier because those steps don't really contain that much interpretation ability. If it's done wrong, it loses the ability to be interpreted. But if it's done correctly, it still retains that high dimensionality, right? So, you know, reducing those pre-processing steps is going to go a very long way to reducing the amount of time necessary to evaluate the value of a data set for an investor. So that's sort of you know, that that question really is the thing that our company is working on the hardest on. Everyone's trying to answer. Gene, fascinating conversation. Really enjoyed having you and having this conversation with you on this episode. So so thanks so much for joining. And and yeah, I will be I will be watching what happens with Alt, Alt DG and, and watching for your prophecies to come true over the next five, 10 years. 
It was a pleasure. It was great being on. Thank you.